0: You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand. The Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I take you back a few years. I was at school at the time, and a friend of mine, a number of years older than me, but uh, somebody with whom I would occasionally go camping, um, asked me if I'd be interested in seeing something uh, that was completely amazing. And, of course, I said yes, and uh, we put the uh, camping gear, and, and there was some other equipment as well. He threw into the back of his pickup truck, and uh, we jumped in, and off we went. And we went off into the African felt. so we used to speak of it, V-E-L-D. And eventually, uh, after a couple of hours, we arrived in a, in a very remote and isolated area and all that one could see there were uh, ant mounds, I, you know, a common sight in that part of Africa, but I've never seen it anywhere else since. And so I'm going to try and describe it because uh, you, you've probably not seen it. Okay, so uh, there we are in the felt, and there's this tall – Grass and the grass, you know, could be five feet high, easy. um, And there's bushes and there's trees. And every now and then, dotted around, were these um, huge um, sand heaps. But when I say sand heap, you tend to think of a heap of sand like you might find on a construction site where it's around. Round shaped heap of sand. No, this looks like a a gothic cathedral of kinds. This is hard. The it's when you go up to it, it feels more like rock than it does like sand. And it doesn't look as if it's a pile of sand carelessly dropped off the back of a a dump truck. No, this is it's got towers and turrets and. and lower sections, and and there are even holes in it that are doors or windows. And just to give you an idea of the scale, this thing uh, was was taller than I am, right? The the thing stands anywhere from four to seven feet. They're huge, absolutely huge. Um, uh, Circumference, uh, 25 feet maybe, uh, 20 feet. It's big. Anyway, uh, he said, all right, let's find a place to camp, all right? So we set up the tent, and there was a a little stream there, and it was perfectly comfortable. It looked like a nice place, but I still didn't know why we came here particularly. Usually when we went camping, it was, you know, to go for a hike in a specific area or to climb a a specific mountain. Uh, You know, I was no big mountain climber, but, but, you know, uh, call it a hike with, more difficult sections but here there was nothing so i so you know what's what's going on well once the camp was set up and we built a, a campfire he then said right now come i want you to watch something and he took out of the back of his truck a big piece of cardboard you know you know what it was like um, you know if a refrigerator gets delivered to you sometimes it comes in a cardboard packaging and so uh, there, it's made up of four big pieces of cardboard, each the size of the dimension of the front or the back or one of the sides of the fridge, and a top and a bottom. That's what it looked like. It was a big piece of cardboard. It looked like it it could have come from a a, a refrigerator packaging, and uh, and then he took uh, something that looked like a, a black marker pen, uh, and uh, and then he had. Um, uh, a meter stick. This is—it's like a long wooden ruler, three feet and three inches in length. It, because South Africa was on the metric system by that time, and uh, and so it's it's a it's it's a stick uh, marked off marked off uh, as a meter. Okay. So then um, he asked me to hold the cardboard vertically next to the ant mound. So he then laid the end – he put the end of the meter stick uh, against a particular point on the, on the mound, and at the end of the meter stick, where the meter stick ended on the cardboard, he, he made a marking with the black marker pen. And he did this many times, um, like maybe 40 times, and when he'd finished – he had marked on the cardboard um, basically what was the line of the cross-section of the contour of this uh, termite mound or this ant mound. Okay, fine. Then he took a knife and he started... Meanwhile, I'm still in total uh, bewilderment, right? I do not know what's going on. Meanwhile, then, he, uh, he takes the knife and cuts the line and... When he's got it all, he, he throws away one piece. He discards it. And the main piece of the cardboard, he holds up against the termite nest, and it matches almost exactly. You can barely see daylight where a, a, at exactly one point where it contacts the termite nest or the ant nest, and he'd managed to transfer the contours of the nest to the cardboard. He'd cut it out. And it was now like a template of the cross-section of the nest. I hope I'm making sense. If not, if you wait for just a moment, I think it should become clear as to what happens here. Okay. So then, back to the truck, and he comes back with an axe and a shovel. And he starts attacking the termite nest, exactly where the cardboard had been. And he starts hacking away at it, and believe me... Uh, these grains of sand had been glued into position meticulously, and it it was really hard going. He he asked me to take the shovel and join in, and we're just one side of the the nest, not the whole thing, just one side, we're trying to take it down. Meanwhile, no sooner do we attack the ant nest, immediately outpour, like I I was going to say millions, but I'd rather not exaggerate, a huge number of ants. Uncountable, and uh, he, sh- my friend, who is very knowledgeable in this area, shows me, and he points out that there's two kinds of ants, and you can see the difference between them. One group of ants is um, is the attacking ants, so the defender's ants. They are there to drive off the uh, the the asylans, namely us. Well, uh, I can tell you, a few got up my boot and under my pants legs. And uh, I knew when they got there because they started stinging my legs. Uh, and I, I was dancing up and down in agony, and he was laughing. And you know, I managed to kill him and get away from them. but he showed me what to do about my pants and my boots to minimize. But that was these ants trying to stop us from, from, doing, from doing what we'd been doing. While that's going on, a different-looking group of ants, again, huge numbers of them, Thousands and thousands are pouring out of the nest, and uh, they have started repairing it. And I'm watching, and I literally, I see these ants. Each one gathers up one grain of sand, and then they come to another ant that sort of sticks up his rear end. And you've got to really look carefully, and you see that ant number two is exuding a, a sticky liquid, And number one, rubs the uh, grain of sand that he was holding in his forearms. There's technical names for these on ants. And he then goes and puts it in position. And you can follow. This takes a good few minutes because these are small ants and the distances are real. And he climbs up to the damage and he meticulously places one little grain of sand that has now been coated with glue into position, and he goes back and does another one. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of ants are doing this at the same time. So uh, at that point, it's starting to to get a little uh, evening-wise. We go back to our campsite, and we cook up our uh, uh, Frank's hot dogs and beans and uh, get ready to call it a night. Uh, The next day... We go, and we see that a lot of repairs has been done during the night. So then uh, my friend took me. We drove somewhere else, and we camped somewhere else the next night. And I think there was probably a third night as well somewhere else, and I don't remember the exact place. And then it was time to start heading home, and he says, and now I'm going to show you the whole reason we did this trip. The whole reason we came here is because I wanted to show you something you're not going to believe. So on the way back home, we come to the place where we camped the first night, and we go to where we camped, and nearby was the ant nest that we attacked and inflicted serious damage to. Well, it's all been repaired. We go up close, and uh, there are no more ants climbing around. The job seems to have been done. And the repair was complete. But my friend then says, Go back to the truck, bring the template, bring that big piece of cardboard that we cut to the exact shape of what the termite nest looked like before we did the damage. I think you probably know what I'm going to tell you now, but I've never forgotten it, it is truly mind boggling. Uh, We took the cardboard. Bring it back to the ant nest, hold it up to the ant nest on the place that we damaged and now been repaired, and guess what? You could still barely see daylight between the cardboard and the nest. In other words, my dear friends, I hope you realize the the enormity of, of what I saw and what I'm just telling you. The ants rebuilt the nest to exactly its original dimensions. The exact thing we had damaged was now replaced, and you could not tell the difference, because the cardboard we had shaped to the original contours of the nest still fit the new contours. The enormity of this struck me immediately, and I was, I was dumbfounded. And I said to my friend immediately, how do they do it? And he laughed in in exhilaration because that's – he was hoping I would would catch on. And he said, how do they do what? He wanted to clarify that I knew what the real mystery was here. I said, how does each ant know where to put his grain of sand? Like, where's the collective architect? Where's the civil engineer? Where is the designer? Where is the site supervisor? Where is the foreman? Who is telling these ants where – to place the grains of sand so the end result will repair exactly the damage that was done and restore its shape to precisely what it had been in the first place. This is wild. This is absolutely amazing. It happened, and it happens all the time. There are a lot of amazing things about the nest, by the way. I didn't know it at the time, but uh, the underground tunnel system under the nest uh, can run for hundreds of feet, I mean, the engineering these ants do is incredible. Uh, one of the um, holes, maybe more than one, on this, on this ant heap, uh, this ant mound, uh, is a ventilation hole. It's as if the ants know that air blows more rapidly when you're a few feet off the surface of the ground than on the ground. So in other words, close to the ground, the wind is slowed by stones and bushes and grass and everything, uh, and there's a measurable difference in wind speed between one inch off the ground and six feet off the ground. Well, when air travels at a higher speed, the pressure in that air drops. That's, by the way, the secret of how an airplane wing works. And the, uh, uh, when the, the, uh, the air traveling close to the ground is traveling at a slower speed, so the pressure is higher. And so they have different parts of the ant nest open to the air at different heights. And if you have, imagine, uh, an air tube at a, from an opening low in the ant nest, and it runs through the ant nest, down below, underground, and then all the way to a place on top, to an exit on six feet up on the top of the mound, air is going to flow. Why? Because the air down at ground level is at higher pressure. And it pushes into the hole. And meanwhile, the air exit at the top of the mound is at lower pressure, so it sucks air out just like a straw. And the air is then forced through at a fairly good speed, ventilating the entire nest system, underground and above. It's pretty amazing stuff. But uh, the ants do all of this. Where is the engineer? Where is, well, I know what some of you will say, well, there's got to be a queen ant, and you're absolutely right. Buried way down, deep underground, in the absolute inner recesses of this huge structure of the ant's nest, uh, there is a queen ant. But so what? She's not out there yelling instructions. She's not writing work orders. So what difference does it make? The mystery still stands. The mystery is... How does every one of those 10,000 ants know where to put his grain of sand? So the end result is exactly the way it was before. Huge mystery. When we come back, I'm going to tell you the answer to the mystery and why I'm telling you this in the first place. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Our website is rabbidaniellappen.com rabbidaniellappen.com And uh, firstly... I would like to make sure that you are subscribed to our emailings, because that way not only do we manage to stay in touch, but also you are able to receive information on a regular basis, and uh, you, you, it just arrives in your mailbox. It's great. Wonderful. There it is. Any particular week you're overwhelmed, you don't want to just delete it. But uh, there it is. So do that at rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, also available on Kindle now. Available in electronic download right away is one of the books we published called Hands Off, This May Be Love. Read about it, please, at the website. Uh, it's it, it makes a very persuasive case. Why it is that if particularly a young man and young woman are seeing one another, why it makes sense. That not only do they not have sex, not only do they not even kiss, but that they shouldn't even hug. And yes, even hold hands. Wow, what's that all about? It's called Hands Off, This May Be Love, and it is very compelling, particularly this time of the year. If there are young people in your life who are on the threshold or are already in the dating mode, it's very worthwhile for them to read this and know about it. Okay, back with you in just a few minutes. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement are already retired or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Rabbi Daniel Lapin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Here we are together. Back again on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. So uh, there is the story of the ants. So we come back from that trip, and uh, I say to my friend, I need to understand a little more about this. And he said, you need to read a book called The Soul of the White Ant.'" And it's by a South African author called Eugene Marais, uh, pronounced in South Africa, Marais. And uh, The Soul of the White Hand, and I have no idea if it is still in print or not, but I, I still have my copy from years ago, because I immediately went, and I remember the bookstore, I went to a bookstore in Johannesburg, South Africa, called Random Books, and uh, I got a copy of the Soul of the White Ant by Eugene Marais. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary book. Um, for those of you with, with even the slightest interest in natural history, uh, if, if what I'm talking about intrigues you and uh, and you enjoy almost poetic writing, easy to read. It's like it's not academic. It's not written for zoology departments. But this is written for an amazed young boy Man, whatever, who is absolutely astounded and is desperately eager to try and find out more about how these little creatures function. That's the book, The Soul of the White Ant, and uh, and he he is seen to this day. I think he's seen as one of the great South Africans. He wrote the book in nineteen, say nineteen twenty-five. I'm I'm not. If I'm out, I'm not more than a year out. It's it's right about there. By the way, um, he wrote the book in Afrikaans, which is um, an, an offshoot, if you like, of Dutch, uh, which is in itself somewhat related to Flemish, spoken in Belgium. Meanwhile, there was a rotten scoundrel of a guy in Belgium, and um, a, a really unpleasant, pretentious, artiste kind of guy. Uh, Belgium guy, and uh, his name was Maurice Metalink. and uh, it turned out that he'd got himself quite a, a little uh, gig going, a, a, a little uh, a ripoff game. What he did was he found obscure works by artists and authors far away, and in those days, you know, there was there's no internet, no Google. We're talking 1920s and a lot of people didn't know yet about Eugene Marais. Um, scholars in England had already regarded his work as stupendous. Uh, there were places that knew. I mean, it was it was not – it had been published. The Soul of the White Hand was known. But Maurice Metelink in, in Belgium got hold of the book, literally plagiarized, I mean, without even bothering to change, I'd say about 100 pages of it, in a book that he then published called the um, – uh, the Life of the Ant or something like that. And uh, that's and Maurice Metelink uh, became famous. Anyways, uh, Eugene Marais did try to sue him. Um, for various reasons, that didn't work. But the bottom line was that everybody got to know. What happened is, particularly in the 1960s, a long time later, uh, a, uh, an anthropologist called Robert Audrey who I was a big fan. I mean, I learned a lot from... Robert Audrey wrote a book called The Territorial Imperative. And uh, I, I found that to be... That helped me understand a lot of things. But Robert Audrey helped to popularize Eugene Marais. And uh, today, everyone knows what a scoundrel Maurice Metelink, the Belgian, was. But uh, none of this is important. What is important is a single point that came out of the book. And uh, Eugene Marais depicts this uh, in such eloquent English and articulates it so fluently that I I should really just read that whole section to you, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to leave you to enjoy it all for yourself should you choose to read the book. I mean, how often do I recommend books? And even here, I'm not recommending it to everybody, uh, you if you have a passionate interest in the kind of thing i'm talking about well then you want to read the book anyway the the key thing is that eugene marie answers the question of how do the ants know where to put the grains of sand and no one has improved on his answer although you are going to be a little bit disappointed in the answer nobody's come up with a better answer it's a huge mystery Here is his answer, and he calls it organic unity, and it's really important because it has an application in trying to understand things that are happening in Europe, things that are happening in the United Kingdom, things that are happening in our own country or the country where I live, the United States of America, and no doubt wherever you are listening because I'm I'm happy to say we have a rapidly growing international audience uh, all over the place. So, anyway, when you when you write into me, do tell me if you are listening to the show from elsewhere. Do let me know. I get a kick out of that. So, what's the the principal organic unity? All right, uh, Eugene Murray says, "Look, take a look at your body, and you're always having always regarded your body as your body. It never occurs to you to think of." Your um, of your liver as a separate little creature and your heart as a separate creature and, uh, and your brain as a separate creature, all inhabiting this house called your body. It never occurs to you to think of all the white blood cells whose job is to fight off the enemy and all those red blood cells whose job it is to rebuild the damage. Does that ring a bell? It never occurs to you to regard all these things as separate entities, even though every single cell is unbelievably complex. Our cells are hugely complicated mechanisms, a lot going on there. Anyway, what's my point? The point is that if you give yourself a little intellectual agility, If you let yourself just adjust your point of view just a little bit, you find that you can indeed start seeing your body as a group of different creatures all inhabiting one house, one home. And in this case, it's not a cave or a a, a nest. It's your body. And they all communicate with each other how. How? through a system operated by the brain. And so when the hand picks up some food and puts it in the mouth, that's because the brain sent information requesting that that happen. But uh, it could be one part of the organism putting food into another part of the organism, and then that part of the organism sends it somewhere else. And there are all kinds of separate little creatures operate. All right, it's a bit fanciful, and it's, it's not a truly helpful way of seeing your body work in that fashion. However, it helps us now go back to the ant nest and use our newly acquired intellectual agility in the reverse direction. Hello? I described the ant nest as a home, a house, occupied by huge numbers of separate little discrete creatures. Some of them behaving like white blood cells. Some of them, uh, that's right. Some of them fighting off the enemy, namely me. Some of them rebuilding. Okay, fine. You get the idea. What if you would stop looking at an ant colony that way and you would start seeing it the way you see your body? One big animal, one big organism, one big entity made up of lots and lots of little cells And don't think of them as separate little creatures. Yes, I know that through your microscope or magnifying glass, you noticed that all those little ants had legs and they were moving around. Well, hello, our cells also can move. And so now start seeing the ant nest as one big organism made up of hundreds of thousands if not millions of small parts and these parts have specific functions. There are ants that repair damage. There are ants that repel invaders. And there are ants that make glue. And there are ants that carry uh, uh, sand particles, sand, sand grains. And there are other ants that look for food. And, and in the middle of it all is a queen ant. Now, the big question, which I cannot answer to you, is how does the queen ant communicate with the other ants? Nobody knows. It's not wireless, not radio waves. It's not through sound, not through audible sound. It's not through tapping or vibration. We don't know. Here's the craziest thing. Again, with experiments done in South Africa, when the queen of the ant nest is put in a lead box, but in the same position she was before, the ant nest continues to function. If you carry the the queen ant out of the ant nest, up till about a few feet away, the ants still continue to function. If you take the ant queen ant further away or you kill the queen ant, the, the ant, the whole ant colony winds down, dies, and comes to an end. Well, isn't that exactly what would happen if you took the brain and took it away somewhere? The body that was formerly a house to that brain will eventually die. Now, we know how the brain communicates with other parts of this particular body. We do not know how the queen ant communicates with the other ants of the colony. We don't know that. But she does in some kind of a way. And so she is the brain of this big organism. And this organism has many, many different parts, each of which has its role in continuing the life of this organism. And there it is. Why is this interesting and why do I tell you about it? Well, don't you see? This is now the way we can look at a whole society. The United States of America, sure. Canada, sure. United Kingdom, yeah. Norway, yeah. Start thinking of your society as a complex creature, an organism, and it has many different cells. It has some cells that teach in schools. It has some cells that drive trucks. It has some cells that fix uh, communication systems. It has some cells that uh, captain boats. All kinds of cells operating to make this huge, big organism function. What is the brain of the organism? Well, it's the system of government that we have set up. And the uh, what about the digestive systems of this organism and the food system? Yeah, uh, there are supermarkets and there are trucks and there are roads and uh, uh, communication systems is the nervous system. It is very helpful indeed to start looking at a country as a society, start looking at it as if it was an organism and that all the people, all of us inside <coughs> this organism – are actually cells of thing itself. Isn't that weird? Why is this interesting? Uh, because I'm going to tell you, coming right back. Meanwhile, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. If you feel like communicating with me, then go to Lapin.com, hit the contact us, and uh, I will see your comments. I'll see what you write to me, and I appreciate that. I love hearing from you. Um, This past week, I gave a speech at Grace Life Church in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, wonderful, absolutely wonderful audience there with Pastor Buck and Pastor Amy Schaefer. Uh, What a wonderful organization that is. Uh, Anybody in that area, Eastern Pittsburgh, looking for a great church to associate with, that's the place to be at. But uh, the reason I mention it is that I... um, I met so many people there um, who were aware that I was going to be there because they received Thought Tools, because they received Ask the Rabbi and they heard I was going to be there, and they came and I had a chance to to greet and meet a whole lot of new friends, which I, I love doing. So make sure you're on our mailing list to get Thought Tools, and uh, also uh, make sure you take a look at a new Resource we've published called Hands Off, This May Be Love. It's a book. You can get it as a regular book, but what's really nice is that it's now available as a, uh, a download. You can get this on, um, on Kindle. And it's really very fascinating because it makes the argument that, yeah, uh, when particularly a young man and a young woman are getting to know one another, uh, sexual involvement diminishes the likelihood of a happy conclusion to this. In other words, uh, it is very difficult to make a wise decision when your physical senses are involved, and touch is the most powerful one of those. And so, you know, for for both the woman thinking, uh, I've really got to figure out, is this really the man I want to devote my life to? Is this the man I want to hitch my wagon to? Uh, Or is he just an exciting guy when he puts his arm around me? Um, And the guy's got to think also. This is a woman I need a helpmate, somebody to march through life with me. I need somebody to share all the times, good and bad, tough and easy, uh, joyful and sad. And it's kind of difficult because I, I I have such a strong addiction to the feel of her, to be able to touch her and kiss her and hold her. It's very difficult to make a rational decision because your head starts distorting things. You so badly want the answer to be yes that you make it yes, even when it should be no. And so Hands Off, This May Be Love is a fascinating book working really effectively. Uh, We've sold a huge number of them and uh, have heard back from a whole lot of people who've got the book saying this is really helpful. This has changed the way I've gone through this. Helped me with a romance that's helped me with a relationship. Anyways, uh, take a look at it. It's on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Back in just a moment with why the story of the white ant is so useful. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. So, hello, everybody. And uh, what is the lesson to be learned from the white ant? What does it help us to know that a society, a country, a large group of people can be viewed as if it is one organism holding together large numbers of individual cells in exactly the way that the human body is not really a lot of different organisms like lungs and heart and kidneys and skin cells and blood cells all living together in this big thing we call the skin. No, it could be described that way, but that's not really accurate. But maybe there is some value in seeing a society not as a huge group of completely independent, separate little entities, but instead one huge organism with a lot of different cells Think of everybody on the pla- everybody in the country as if they were a, a blood cell of an organism. Well, it helps to understand certain things. For instance, most of us like to think of ourselves as being incredibly independent. right? We, we really make all the decisions for ourselves. We decide what to believe in, we decide how to think, we decide what we think is true, we decide what we think is false. Yes, siri, we are independent people. The only trouble with that is that uh, ideas spread through a society, and people accept it. People buy into it. And they don't necessarily weigh it up intellectually. In many instances... There is an emotional resonance. It feels good. Yeah, I like that idea. I'm good with that. And so um, the uh, idea that uh, homosexual marriage should be sanctioned by the state and should become a state function, that's spread in that same fashion. It's not that people sat down to think through the consequences, long-term effects. It was usually just simple slogans like, How does me getting married hurt your marriage? You know, and yeah, that's right. Yeah, it doesn't, does it? Or, uh, Why should some people be allowed to fulfill their love and others not? And so, some of these sort of slogans do not reach into your cognitive core, they don't have anything to do with uh, your intellectual virility. No, they they strike at your emotional centers and you go for it. That's what happens. And so these ideas spread through the culture uh, almost the way a virus spreads through an organism. Um, The idea that gender is fluid and that uh, it exists on a spectrum. Well, now it's at the point where in some states medical professionals, doctors and nurses – can be penalized if they list a man as a man without checking that that's what he wants to be listed as. Maybe he wants to be listed as a woman, and conversely, the other way around. So these ideas, again, spread through the society. How? Well, it's much easier to understand if we consider the possibility that one can view a society as if it was an organism. And once it's an organism, well, I know how viruses spread through an organism. I see it all the time. I understand that. Uh, the uh, the idea that again, I've I've spoken to a lot of people, and one of the questions I ask just in passing is, uh, by the way, how serious a problem is black uh, white uh, police officers killing unarmed black men? And. Uh, Again, nobody says – at least very few people I've spoken to say, well, I'd have to look at the figures. I know that there are statistics available, um, you know, the number of shootings by policemen, number of shootings by white policemen, number of shootings by black policemen, number of uh, police shootings victims, number of them that are white. Now, you, you know, taking a look at these numbers and then drawing a conclusion. No. This is a virus that has spread through society, and in spite of the fact that it's completely untrue, uh, they people will immediately say, yes. It, it's, a ve- it's one of the biggest problems of the country right now. White policemen shooting unarmed black uh, men. Yeah, right. It isn't one of the big problems of the country. I mean, it's a sad thing if, when it happens, but it's not one of the big problems of the country in the area of big problems. And so ideas spread by means of this idea that the, uh, the, the society is, in a sense, a form of organism. And we understand it more effectively that way. We also um, notice that with an organism, you see, say a human, a human body, the human body pops an unhealthy substance in its mouth, and the result isn't that it impacts the mouth. The result is that it might impact the toes down the road. So, for ima- instance, imagine um, imagine somebody suffers from gout. It's a uh, it's a disease that affects I think mostly men, and it's, I don't think it's it's not widespread, but quite a lot of people have it, and uh, and so there, if you view the human being as a collection of different organisms all living in the same place called a body, then you see some red meat and some wine being popped into the mouth, and then all of a sudden two big toes at the other extremity of this organism suddenly get inflamed and, uh, and and obviously something is very wrong with them. We understand how that happens in a human body because we see the body as one united organism. But in a society, we're accustomed to seeing the society as made up of millions of separate disconnected individuals, and so... It's very hard to understand how can it be that one person somewhere or a group of people somewhere engage in destructive behavior or any kind of behavior and a whole lot of other people, miles away, who've never met the first group of people, start doing the same thing, right? Again, things spread. Now, we have... um, Mechanisms that help to spread it television, um, radio, communications, newspapers. And so, um, you know, take tattooing. Tattooing today is much more popular than it has been at certain times in the past. So, why is it that if I'm walking down the road, I might all of a sudden feel some kind of an impulse to get a tattoo? Just because a whole lot of other people elsewhere in the country have done it, and I may not even have seen them, I may not even have read about them, yeah, that's right, it does work that way. In an organism, things do spread in very interesting ways, and that's exactly what this helps to illustrate so effectively. There are other examples of things that spread through the culture, means, um, ideas, thoughts, things that become popular. Uh, to the extent that many individuals believe that they have carefully considered the question and have arrived at a sane, um, contemplated, thoughtful, purposeful, deliberate conclusion, when in reality all that's happened is you are part of a big organism and you've been infected with an idea. And it spreads, spreads all the way through the entire organism. A useful a useful tool and a, a valuable way of looking at society and the way ideas spread through society is not always going to provide a definitive answer, but it is useful. I've certainly found that there are many things that unravel themselves and reveal themselves more effectively uh, when I view a group of people, whether it's a family or whether it's a corporation or whether it is a club or a civic organization – whatever it is I'm working with, when I begin to view them as if they are all parts of one single organism. And I ask myself, well, what effect would that have? Uh, Could that explain some of the things we're seeing? And if so, what is the medication we can give? In other words, if this is an organism, what might be the medication that would neutralize the disturbing effect that uh, the organizers of this organization, whatever it is, asked me to come in and look at in the first place? All right, my friends, I appreciate very much you listening, and I particularly appreciate those of you who helped to spread the word of this show. You've been doing absolutely great. It is growing to my enormous gratification, and I certainly appreciate it. Uh, the website, rabbi daniel Lapin.com. Don't forget, stop by and uh, read up about this new book of ours called Hands Off, This May Be Love. Take a look at that. I think it will have some things in it that will not only surprise you, but could actually be very useful uh, to somebody in your orbit. Take a look at rabbidaniellappin.com. Also make sure you're on the mailing list and you receive thought tools. That'll be terrific. And uh, finally, if there's anything you want to say to me, that would also be a good place to say it at rabbidaniellappin.com. So uh, until next week, I am Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wishing you only good times in your faith, your finances, your friendships, and your family. God bless. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.